I want to encourage you now to turn in your Bibles as we look at the book of John. As we look at the book of John. We began the book of John early this year and we have been studying uh, this gospel and we have completed chapter 1 and we have moved on to chapter 2 here and John's purpose is to set out for us the fact that Jesus is God and he is fully man as well that people might believe in him and receive eternal life and there in chapter 1 he sets out the testimony that has been given by himself by John the Baptist and by the witnesses who later became apostles, the calling of the first disciples there, the first apostles, five of them, all as an eyewitness to who Christ is. And now we come to John chapter 2, and we will be reading together verses 1 through 12. The text reads, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, once again, we come before your word, your precious word, which endures forever. We pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of our heart and grant to us understanding through your spirit that we might know and understand you all the more. In Jesus' name, Amen. By way of review, as I mentioned earlier, we've been looking at the book of John, the Gospel of John, and John here, he sets out evidence to set forth that Jesus is God. 
and that he is fully man. And we covered chapter one, as I shared with you as well, that that was the prologue of the eyewitness testimony of John the Apostle, of John the Baptist, and of the five that he first called, who later became apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eyewitness testimony to the fact that Jesus is God. And now we move on to a section between chapters 2 and chapter 12 of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. And then from chapters 13 on to chapter 17 is his private ministry in which he withdraws to the upper room and ministers to the apostles. And then later on in chapter 18 through 21 of his death and resurrection. And this is the flow of thought in the Gospels, that Jesus has a period of time in which he has a public ministry and then he has a private ministry after persecution and after the opposition grow towards him. But now we begin in a section of text of John chapter 2, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in which he preaches and he has powerful miracles that he performs validating who he was, that he was God and that he is God. And here is a well-known account of the wedding at Cana. Now, everyone wants to have a flawless wedding. Those who have been married and are or going to get married, they want a picture-perfect wedding. And in all of the premarital counseling that I've done, hasn't been a whole lot, but the things that I've done, I've always shared with people, expect something to go wrong. Expect something to go wrong. Don't expect it to be perfect. And I'm sure when those of you who are married can think back to your wedding, you can think of the things that did not go as planned. I think of one wedding that I had performed a long time ago in another little town with a young couple and began. It was quite an exciting time. Began, the mothers went up the aisle and they were going to light the candles. And that should have been a simple thing had the little lighter that one of them was using didn't work. So the other one had to come over and light the candles and help her out for that. But that wasn't the worst thing. It was about halfway through this particular wedding. I was in the wedding giving the message. And I noticed that the bride was leaning more and more on the groom. She was somewhat holding her stomach. And I was thinking to myself, oh no, this doesn't look too good. So I hurried through the message and I cut out a good portion of this message and I closed the message in prayer. And when I opened my eyes, the bride and groom were gone. (laughs) They had left. And I was standing there with the bridesmaids and the groomsmen And they had both exited out the side door of the church. Well, I didn't really know what to say. You know, I thought to myself, you know, there are people who have cold feet. Usually there are times that I uh, read about those in stories. Usually they don't even show up to the church and they uh, leave before that time. I'd never experienced that. But frankly, I didn't know what was going on. 
some of the congregants that were there were thinking the same thing. What happened? Runaway groom or reluctant bride? Didn't quite know. It was a beautiful, sunny day, though, there. And the church was hot and it was stuffy. And it was growing to be somewhat like an indoor sauna because there was no fan, no ventilation, nothing of that sort. And I was sweating because I had a gown on and underneath I had a suit, a wool suit. And behind me, I was standing right up against the podium in which there were candles. And these candles, I could feel the heat of them because the podium was very, very short. And so, to make a, a, a comment, because no one knew really what was going on, I basically said, it's rather warm up here, and the musicians will be playing for you an interlude at this time. And so the musicians began to play their deal and just play, and hopeful, hoping that they would play it all off. But as you know, it was unplanned. And so we stood there and we waited and we waited and we waited to see what would happen. And I'm sure it wasn't as difficult for me as it was for the very pregnant bridesmaid that was standing there as well. But after some 10 minutes or so of standing there, the bride and the groom walked back in and they smiled and the ceremony continued. But it was such a a nervous time and I was so flustered as to what had happened. I forgot my lines and I royally botched the wedding vows. I cannot even remember what I told them to say. And then I asked for the wedding ring by which the groom and his best man had trouble finding where the ring was. And finally they located it in somebody's pocket and they handed it to me by which time they somehow dropped the ring and it went bouncing down the steps and the man says, oh, don't worry, I've got it and retrieved the ring and put it on the bride's hand. Nothing goes perfectly. It was because of the heat and the tight wedding dress. The entire series of missteps from one end to the other was one of the most memorable weddings that I had ever done. But now, as some of you know, they are happily married, have children, and live somewhere in the Midwest or the East Coast. And in the wedding, I always tell people, never expect things to go perfectly. Never expect things to go perfectly. And in every wedding, seems as if there is something that goes wrong. And in this context today, as we look at the wedding at Cana, a similar thing happened. A very serious problem arose. A very serious problem that needed remedying. So let me set for you, before you, the setting that is here in verses 1 and 2. For it says, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now there was a wedding, and Cana of Galilee was somewhat close to the town of Nazareth, where Jesus' hometown was. It was about nine miles north of Nazareth, and it was a little town. I really, and I emphasize, it was a very small town, likely had less than 50 people or so. It was more of an agricultural community that gathered there. Nazareth wasn't much bigger. Nazareth was at its highest maximum, perhaps some 500 people, but it was a neighboring little town and it was only nine miles away. 
from my house in Newcastle all the way here as a crow flies, that is nine miles. And so undoubtedly, people knew each other from the towns next door. Likely there were relatives or friends or workers in the same fields or whatever it may be. They knew one another. Cana of Galilee, as you remember, when Jesus called Nathanael in John chapter 1, he called them and called him and he was from Cana of Galilee. And he said of Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Perhaps there was competition between the two towns, perhaps some type of prejudicial feelings, whatever it may be. And Nathaniel came from that town, and there it was. They were having a wedding. And the mother of Jesus was there. And some might surmise that perhaps Joseph, the father of Jesus, had died by this time. But there was some relationship between the bride and the groom who were getting married in the town of Galilee and the mother of Jesus. Jesus and his disciples were invited to this wedding. Now, weddings in New Testament times were big deals. They were a very important social and community event. To get married in the New Testament times was a long process, but it was a joyous process. To get married, you would first of all be betrothed to your bride. It was similar to our engagement, except for the fact that it was a much more serious commitment. You were considered to be married. And once you were betrothed to your bride, you were considered to be married, and it could only be broken by a formal divorce. Only could be broken by a formal divorce, but once you were betrothed, there would be a period, number of months, likely a year, by which two things would be done. One, the bride would prove her fidelity, because if she was not faithful, then it would show within that year. But the husband would also have a responsibility, and that responsibility was to provide, show that he could provide for his new family. He would build a house, oftentimes attached to the family's home, or sometimes it would be separate, but he would provide a home. He would provide a a work. He would be able to work and to save for the wedding, and, and he would be able to prove that he could make a living and that he would be able to support a new family. So it was during this time of public betrothal that the family would announce the wedding date and there would be elaborate preparations in which the ceremony would be held about a year on out or so and that whole wedding would take up to an entire week and the whole community would be invited. And this was a large and significant community event. Everyone would know, especially in such a small town like Cana which had a very small population. And it was such a a monumental thing to have a wedding that that is why in the Jewish mind that when they spoke of the Messiah coming, you read about that in the New Testament, that they spoke of Him coming as a bridegroom for His bride and there will be a banquet. It is all cast in the greatest celebration, that of a wedding that of a wedding. And here was a wedding that took place in Cana. And Jesus was there. 
Jesus was there. And I think it's important to note that Jesus, by his very presence and by his miracle that he performs before his family and friends there, that he validates the importance of a ceremony or the importance of an open commitment, an open covenant of what marriage is. Because marriage is between a man and a woman and it is a public commitment. You do not see in the scriptures that people who simply live together for a while are married. There is an institution in every culture. There is a ceremony by which there is an open commitment that is made, a marriage commitment between a man and a woman. And here Jesus attends this wedding and provides for the bride and for the groom. But as it was in this case, not every wedding goes as planned. And so there is a problem. The situation we find in verse 3 to 5. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Verse 3. You see, food and gift giving were paramount in the culture of that day. Weddings, ceremonies, because weddings would last several days, they would need a lot of food, a lot of wine, and it would be calamitous for a family to be short on something so integral to a wedding such as wine. Now, wine was very common in the Near East. Wine was very common because there was no way to refrigerate grape juice and it would tend to ferment. And it would tend to ferment and become alcoholic, but to avoid inebriation and to avoid people becoming drunk because of the wine that they drank, wine was often diluted one part to three parts or one part to ten parts, somewhere in that range. In other words, one part of wine to ten parts of water, and it would serve as an antiseptic to kill the bacteria because you couldn't simply drink the water as it was in those days. Uh, And so what they do is they would dilute it. And in celebrations such as this, the wine would be very diluted. The Bible doesn't forbid the drinking of wine, and sometimes it even commands it, but it does strongly forbid and clearly forbids drunkenness. In addition, there are prohibitions many times for Christians not to cause another individual, another brother or sister in Christ to stumble by one's liberties. And so there is a warning that is given in regards to wine, but there's no prohibition. And so here in this particular wedding, they run out of wine. The dilution of wine was common, as I mentioned. But the fact that they ran out was a very serious situation. Because the family would look upon the groom who was supposed to provide for his bride, provide for a new family, was to provide for the staple of the wedding, the wine that was going to be drunk. It would be a major embarrassment. It would be a major embarrassment. It would bring shame to the new family that this young man couldn't even throw a party and plan for enough to drink for all of the guests. It would be a stigma that would be attached to him for the rest of their life. We don't know why he ran out. 
But the fact of the matter is, this was a very serious and a very bad situation. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, and by the way, Mary's name is never mentioned explicitly by the Apostle John in the book of John. It's always termed the mother of Jesus, comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Now, the implication of her concern, the implication of her concern is that somehow she is uh, intimately involved in the wedding. She's intimately involved. She knows what is happening she perhaps is helping a family friend or some, something of that sort. Maybe she was involved with the catering or whatever it was. But possibly being a widow at this time, she would be inclined then to ask and depend upon her firstborn son to help her. So she says to Jesus, there is no wine. Now some of you who are still living at home underneath the roof of your parents, if you are at home and you are playing your video games or checking your Facebook page and your mother comes to you and says, we have no milk or the garbage is full, you don't want to quote Jesus and say, woman, what does that have to do with us? You may think to yourself, how rude. You will not have those privileges anymore. The term woman wasn't rude or mean. When we see Jesus' response to his mother, it wasn't an intimate term, though, because if he wanted to say mother, he could say it in a very intimate way. But here he uses a formal term such as ma'am, as what we might say. He uses this term one other time when he is on the cross and he tells John to take care of his mother. He says woman there as well. And the statement that says, what does that have to do with us, is an idiomatic idea that says, how does that relate to me and to you? So what is Jesus saying here and why does he say what he says in such a formal way? Why does he say what he says in this manner to his mother? He says what he says because it is a distancing. It is a distancing of himself. It is more formal to say such a thing because no longer is his relationship such as a mother-son relationship in Nazareth as he's growing up as a boy. His ministry, his public ministry begins here. His public ministry begins and his formal ministry when he goes about his father's business and it's followed by his statement, my hour has not yet come. In other words, he is saying in effect... Mother or ma'am, I am about my father's business. I will be doing what my father says on his timetable, not on others' expectations of me. I will be following my father's will. I will be doing as my father wills and the spirit leads. It is that of a formal question that distances himself to be following God on his timetable now. 
My hour has not yet come is a phrase that John uses often when he states what Jesus says many times in the book of John to refer to his death and his glorification. In other words, all that he has in view in his public ministry and then withdrawing to his private ministry is the view that he has of his death and his glorification. All that he does now is going to be according to God's divine plan. And since the time of his birth, Mary had known that. Mary had known that, that Jesus was the Messiah. And some might say, well, here, perhaps perhaps she's asking him to do a miracle. That's what some might say and commentaries might say. That Mary wants him to come out and show that he's the Messiah at this time, but perhaps there is a simpler answer. Here, Mary comes to her firstborn son and says there is no more wine, not only because he's the firstborn son, but you can imagine what it would be like to have Jesus as a son. Every time you had a problem, every time you needed advice, he never gave an advice or suggestion that was dumb. You ask me for advice, I will tell you what I think, and it might be a poor idea. Half of them just don't work, and all of us have that type of a thing. But imagine, he asked Jesus, I I don't know what to do about this. And as a boy, he'd say, well, maybe you ought to do this. And he was always right. He was always right. I don't know how Joseph felt, but she would always ask Jesus, I'm sure, because the solution that he would give would always be the perfect thing. You want to know how to do something? She would probably ask Jesus. And here, here is a dilemma that is here. There is a dilemma that is here because there is no more wine. And Jesus' response to her was a formal distancing. In fact, it was somewhat of a mild rebuke. And Mary said to the servants, undauntedly, he said, Whatever he says to you, do it, her mother said to the servants. Notice that she is somewhat involved in the whole process here. The word servants is from the word diakonos, meaning that of from the word we get deacon, not doulois, which is the word for slave. So we know that these servants are people who likely are perhaps friends or relatives at the wedding who were also helping out with all of the details. These servants do are to do what he says. And now we see the first miracle, the first sign of Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up with water and he said to them, draw out some now and take it to the head waiter. Now there were these stone pots. There were these stone pots. They weren't earthenware pots. And the reason why they weren't earthenware pots is because this washing that he's talking about, they were used for washing. These were for ceremonial washings. The Jews were fastidious about washing their hands prior to eating, washing the utensils. They would wash and wash and wash again and again for the purpose of ceremony, for the purpose of their beliefs, their their 
religious beliefs. It was for ritual purification. It wasn't because of sanitary reasons. And here there were cleansing, there were clean water. It would be considered clean coming out of a stone pot and pure coming out of a stone pot versus that of an earthenware pot, which would be considered potentially unclean. And he tells them to fill it to the brim, to fill it to the brim so that no one reading this years later would ever think that maybe a little wine was added to the water. Showed that nothing was short of it being fully changed to wine. And here you had a half a dozen of these pots and it would be 120 to 180 gallons of wine that would last plenty for the rest of the wedding. And also there would be likely left over as a provision of God's gracious gift for the bride and for the groom and for the family. And Jesus instructed them. He said to fill these pots with water and the miracle that he would perform would validate once again that Jesus is God. You cannot miss the fact that this miracle was astounding. The water was taken to the head waiter, likely the master of ceremonies because he calls over the groom in a way that perhaps a slave or servant might not. He calls over the groom to compliment him on the quality of the wine, the best the sweetest, the freshest wine that he had ever tasted. Why? Because it was created by the Lord Jesus. He had made it and it was a miracle, changing the water into wine, the best wine that he had ever tasted. And he took it to him and he, he said, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The head waiter was astonished and he complimented the groom. And there's some historical evidence to show that that is what people did back then. And that is logical. It's an axiomatic as well. I mean, I'm sure that he, he had experience. This is what people typically do. This is what you and I typically do. You and I, when, if, we had a, if we had some sort of a dinner party at our home and let's say guests that weren't invited came or they ate more than they ought to, what do you do? You start scavenging. You look in the refrigerator. You open it up and you look at yesterday's leftovers and you throw something together and you pull out more food and you do whatever it takes so you can have enough food for your guests. Not as good as the fresh food that you had just served. And so too, it was axiomatic. That's what people did back then. They would serve the best first. And the last, they would take out the lower quality wine. This wine, though, it was the best. John ends the event in summary by saying in verse 11, the beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. In the book of John, there are eight particular miracles, eight particular signs that John highlights. Now, there are many more that were done. He says so at the end of the book of John, but eight in particular, changing water to wine in chapter two. He heals a dying man in chapter 4. 
He cures a paralyzed man in chapter 5. He feeds thousands in chapter 6, as well as walks on water in chapter 6. He gives sight to the blind in chapter 9. He raises a dead man in chapter 11, and he makes breakfast uh, for his disciples in chapter 21. This sign, no doubt, spread throughout all of the community. Throughout all of the people in that small community, this first miracle. And there was no one to fabricate a miracle like this. In fact, the servants, the servants were not his disciples. The servants knew, they knew where the wine had come from. They knew that he had changed the water to wine. But notice that his very first miracle that he does is for his family and for his friends. In this close-knit community, he does it for his family and his friends. Astonishingly, though, the miracle which also displayed his deity didn't turn everyone's heart. For in Luke 4, he went back to Nazareth. And he was in the synagogue and he read the scriptures and he proclaimed his Messiahship saying that this scripture is now fulfilled in your presence. And his own community took him up and they aimed to stone him. Nonetheless, Jesus performed his first miracle among his own family and his friends. Why? Purpose is twofold. Verse 11. To manifest His glory. To manifest His glory. The goal of these signs that Jesus did, the goal of these miracles is to manifest and to show and to display His glory, to highlight that He is the Messiah, to highlight that He is the Creator and the Savior of the world. And John brings that out in each of these signs that we will see in the book of John. That Jesus Christ is God and Savior of the world. Secondly, that others might believe. Others might believe. Verse 11. For it said that those who saw it believed. I should say his disciples believed in him. Servants did it. Not everyone was turned. But Christ came to save sinners, that sinners might turn to Him for salvation through repentance and faith in Christ. And His disciples believed. So this account here is not merely a story. It is a manifestation of Christ's glory that others might believe. And it lays out for us some very practical things as we observe The details of the story, things that are lessons to us that we draw from this account. Four lessons in particular. One in observation is that we can pray and ask God for things both great and small. We can ask God for things that are both great and small. It was part of God's divine plan, unbeknownst to Mary. And even though Jesus had said we are setting ourselves on on myself on a divine timetable, that Jesus performs this miracle for them. The things that concern us, whether they are big or small, significant or insignificant, Jesus cares. He meets the needs. Not because he is necessarily himself 
concerned about that particular thing, but he desires that we glorify him through the answering of our prayers. So don't say, well, I shouldn't pray or I don't need to pray about that. It's so insignificant or why would God care about that or this? It's so small. Or to tell our children, don't, don't ask God to find your toy because he doesn't really care about those things. No. Encourage you to pray about everything that God places on your heart. For God desires that you come to him. For he is a good God, a father who desires to give his children good things. Why? For his glory. That we might thank God for providing things both great and small. Secondly, we observe the generosity of Jesus. As we saw previously, he provided 120 to 180 gallons of wine. More than enough for that type of banquet. More than enough for the guests to drink for an entire week. And he has much that is left over for them. He's undes- we are undeserving and he is generous. Thirdly, that Christ cared. Christ cared about the celebrations and events in our lives. Some believe that, you know, things such as weddings, which by the way was instituted, marriage is institution by God and other family affairs, celebrations really aren't all worth all that much because they may be seen as, well, that's not a spiritual event. I'd rather do this for the Lord. But these celebrations, these significant events in our lives, God cares about. Jesus attended a celebration, a wedding. Whatever events we have, they're opportunities. Opportunities for us to testify of God's goodness, of God's grace. And fourthly, Jesus did miracles that met real needs. Jesus did miracles that met real needs. Unlike charlatans who want to amaze people by floating in the air or doing card tricks or making stars dance from their fingertips, Jesus met real needs through the miracles and the wonders that he did. He would heal the sick. He would make a lame man walk. He would raise the dead. He would restore sight to the blind. He would do things that would meet real needs, feeding thousands of hungry people. And above all, he would save sinners. He meets real needs. Above all, this first sign, John says in chapter 20, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. It says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The presentation of this account is not merely a story. It is a historical account that delineates that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in Christ? If you turn from sin and repentance and faith to the Savior who died for you, that you might have eternal life and freedom from the guilt that accompanies 
the sin that we carry. That we have life in His name. Is that what you have? Jesus here lays out His provision. His provision for our needs. For He has the power not only to change water to wine, but the power to transform a heart that is bound often to ceremonialism. Our own man-made purification of alleviating guilt and sin, much as the religious leaders did in those days, to true freedom and a new creation of the heart. And that is what Jesus and God desires for you. That you know Him, that He is the Son of God who came as the Savior of the world. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your grace and your goodness. And Father, in this simple account, the miracle of changing water to wine, we see the testimony, O Lord, of your Son, the Savior of the world, who can change our hearts. So, Father, I pray that we might be all the more dependent upon you and the wonder of your Son and his glory may be manifested in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.